Thank you very much, Twyla. That was fantastic. Uh, very, very unique uh, God coincidence because uh, while Twyla is talking here about God being able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, uh, somebody brought me a little note that one of you wrote and said, I believe God wants to tell us today that God will when we can't. And so thank you, Twyla, because that is 100% what you just finished sharing with the kids, uh, and all of us heard it. Uh, he is able to do immeasurably more than what we ask or imagine. And uh, for those of you that need to hear that in a special way today, I pray that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, would connect with your heart and your spirit in a way that would be real and meaningful to you regarding that message. I was having coffee with a young adult this week, and in the course of our conversation and talking about life and what is all going on, both locally and beyond, uh, he made an interesting comment. He said, from what I've observed, this world needs a lot more Jesus. And all I can say is, amen. This world needs a lot more Jesus. And so I have prayed, and I, I believe many of you have prayed over time, uh, and you've at least thought and, and wondered and, and wanted, desired, um, Jesus, we need more of you. I need more of you. We, our world, <clears throat> we need more of you. And we sing songs that say much the same, the same thing. We need more of you, God. We need more of you. And then we wait for him to show up. And somewhere in the stillness, I hear him say, that is why I created church. That is why I sent my Holy Spirit to breathe our life into the church, God says. And then I also remember, yeah, that's right. The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. So, then are we really saying or thinking, this world needs a lot more church? Hmm. And I guess I'm not quite as convinced. Do we need more church? Well, if the world needs more Jesus, and I believe it does, and I think all of you were nodding in agreement, and the Bible says that the church is the body of Jesus, then why am I hesitant to say that our world needs a lot more church? seems to be a reasonable deduction. The only reason for that hesitance could be that I am not convinced the North American Christian Church is always doing a very good job of being the body of Jesus. Are we getting it? So, from one angle, and from one angle only, there are many other angles, I concede that immediately, but for day, today, we can only pick one um, I want to, together with you, do a little soul-searching exercise together, especially as we think about um, September being just around the corner and us looking at getting different aspects of church life up and running again. Um, let's do a little soul-searching 
exercise. I want to take a good look together with you at a parable that Jesus teaches, a story that he tells, and it's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Uh, And along with this parable, so I'm going to invite you already to turn there, grab your device if you need to, grab your paper uh, Bible if if you've got it here. It's not going to be up on the screen today. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. I want to invite you to turn there already. Along with reading this parable and talking about this parable, here's a question I want to ask you. Has church become an inconvenience for you? I mean, all they ever do there is ask for money and ask for me to volunteer to do stuff. And I mean, I have a life too. I can't just forever be volunteering to help them out. Notice the terminology, it was intentional. I can't forever be volunteering to help them out. Has church and its needs or demands become an inconvenience to you? Let that spin around in your mind as we do this little soul-searching exercise together this morning. So, Matthew chapter 25, uh, if you've got it somewhere, follow along. If you'd like to just sit and listen, uh, by all means do that. I'll try and read it in my best reader's theater voice. Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. Uh, Again, it will be like a man... Okay, so hang on just one second. Um, It will be like... What are we talking about? If you jump back to 25 verse 1, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like... And so he tells one story in the first 14 or 13 verses, and then he goes to the next story, starting in verse 14, but he's talking about the same thing. So the kingdom of heaven will be like... It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of, his serv- of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The story takes a little turn. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. 
Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's the story. Jesus tells the story to illustrate an aspect of how life in the kingdom of heaven works. And I think we can be correct in assuming that he's talking about life in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Here on earth where we're trying to live out kingdom of heaven principles. We're trying to capture what kingdom of heaven living is all about. Here's how it sometimes works. And he tells this story. Here on earth where the followers of Jesus get together to live out the best we can, the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And I think I'm fair in identifying that as the church. This is how things to work tend to work often in the church. And he tells this story that helps to illustrate one aspect, one kind of area of how church life tends to work. The story is of a, of a big man. At least he's, he's important, he has much. And this man is going to go away and he needs people to take care of what he has. There's no email back in that day, there's no FaceTime, no Skype, no go-to meeting. When he leaves, he is gone. And what he leaves behind, he is entrusting into the hands of his servants. He's giving it to them and he's not going to be checking in. He's not going to be in touch. He's going to be away. And he fully entrusts what he's got into the hands of these, of these servants. It's interesting that it uses the word talents. We've, we've often kind of immediately made the connection uh, to it meaning or referring to much more than money. Um, and, and I think that's okay. I think that's a legitimate connection. However, in, in this context, the word talent actually means a, a physical amount of money or, or a certain amount of property that equals a certain amount of money. So that's the original meaning of the word talent here is, is money or property that equals a certain amount of money. The word has inadvertently helped us kind of to, to make a connection. And we begin to think of all kinds of things. We think of energy and, and time and, and abilities and gifts and resources and, and money. I think it's an appropriate connection. So, as I read this story and as I contemplate, it seems to me that this parable is trying to teach us kind of two general truths. Truths that we do well to keep in mind when we think about how we approach life and particularly church life or, or Christian life, kingdom of heaven life. And, and I, I, I would like us to, to view that as bigger than just the immediate four walls of the church or, or the immediate, this group of people that's gathered here together this morning. Kingdom of heaven living. Kingdom of heaven life. So the first truth comes out of the word entrusted. I want to focus on that for a little bit. If you check here in verse 14, it uses that word a little bit later on. When the servants come back and give a report, they use that word again, you entrusted to us. And so that word entrusted, we're going to focus on that just for, for a couple of minutes. When I was growing up, 
my dad often spoke of or reminded us about, uh, he used this line, uh, be a good steward. And, and I kind of assumed, I don't know if anybody ever explained to me what the definition of that word steward really was. I, I began to assume that what that word meant was to use what you have to its maximum potential. From the context of how my dad kept on using it and kept on reminding us, that's kind of how I, what I gleaned from or what I assumed the definition of that word to be. Use what you've got to its maximum potential. Try to make sure, and particularly financially, try to make sure that you use what you've got to its maximum financial potential. Later in my life, I, I think I kind of expanded that to to include other resources, social, intellectual, physical, uh, along with economical and, and financial. It's not a horrible definition for the word, um, but actually, studying it a little bit more, it, it's not actually totally accurate. Being a good steward does not mean specifically to use what you have to its maximum potential. Rather, the dictionary definition is a noun, that means a person employed to manage another's property. Okay. A person employed to manage another's property. Now, I'd say that fits very nicely with this particular word that's being used here, uh, entrusted. You can't look at that word and not quickly see the root word which is, students, start thinking again in school terminology, the root word of the word entrusted is trust. I don't think that was a student that said that. But. <laughs> so students, keep, keep, uh, keep getting going. Trust. Trust is the root word of the word entrusted. When you put, add the prefix en to the front of a word, my dictionary told me that it means to cause to be in. To cause to be in. And so you put those two together and you have to cause to be in trust of. Right? So entrusted means that this guy who entrusted something, he was causing something to be in trust of Someone else. He was trusting somebody with his possessions. The owner caused us to be in trust of talents. So, here's the first general truth that this story teaches. That I think is actually very critical to understand as we do life. All the good stuff you have... Resources, gifts, talents, abilities, opportunities, um, resources. They all do not actually belong to you. They are entrusted to you by the owner. You are being asked to manage what he is entrusting to you. You are being asked to manage someone else's property for them. 
to use it, to spend it, to work it, to invest it, the way you believe the owner would want it to be used and spent and invested. It has been placed, intentionally placed, in your trust by the owner. And I think we're good with assuming that owner to be God himself. Understanding and believing that to be true has to have a significant impact on how we choose to do life. Second general truth. You can find it in verse 16 and 17. There's references to it in the rest of the section also. Uh, the man who had received the five talents, it says, went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. Likewise, the man with two talents. If I translate that into our language, I say they were investing. They were investing. They put their talents to work and they gained back. They were not just giving. They were investing. And I... I'm sorry, maybe I'm, I'm too nitpicky here, but again, I see that as being a very significant difference in how we think when we give. We're not just giving forever. We're actually investing. We are giving with the understanding that something is coming back somehow. I wonder if we're often too short-sighted when we think about giving. See, when you give, be that time, mental energy, physical energy, knowledge, abilities, talents, gifts, whatever. When you give, you're investing. And often when we give, the reason why we come up with it, well, I can't just keep on volunteering forever. I can't just keep on giving forever. It's kind of like we don't understand that this, this is actually investing. It's not just Giving. And so sometimes we're too short-sighted when we think about giving. We only see the one direction. We need to believe that. This parable very clearly makes that point. And there are other places in the Bible where it talks about that also. Mark actually does it several times in his book where he talks about getting a hundred times as much in return. Mark kind of likes to use that hundred times as much language. Maybe he's being a little extreme, I'm not sure. Sometimes it seems like literally that is what God does. Somehow, life and God do give us back over and over. We're actually talking about investing. I saw a great post this past week. Many of you actually saw it because I've been reading comments uh, uh, related to it. Um, I may be a little bit unique, actually, when I read posts. I, I love reading posts from people that I know. Um, I actually just kind of jump over posts from all kinds of rich and famous people. I, I'm actually not, sorry, I'm actually not that interested in what rich and people, famous people say. Um, they're in a totally different world anyways. I, I, I do like to know what my friends or my connections, people who are in this world with me, who understand my world, I, I like to know what they think. And so I, I read a, a great post this past week from uh, Kaylin Clausen, used to be Bartell. Uh, where she challenged our world's obsession with self-love and self-care. 
And I want to read just a little, but with her permission, read a little section of, of what she wrote. Some of you have already read this, I know, and so bear with the rest of us who haven't yet heard it. Self-love, she says, this slogan is everywhere. We see it all the time, and everyone is embracing this mindset and telling slash encouraging others to do the same. Many, many of them are well-meaning and friendly people. But when I take a look at the lives of people close to me, whose characters I admire, I don't see them making self-love a priority. I don't see them putting themselves above everyone else. I never hear them saying, it's okay to be selfish. Something that I've read exactly like that a few times on social media recently. I see these people preparing a meal for their family when they would really rather sit down and relax. I see them putting their time and effort into their church which the many other members can and do benefit from. I hear them speak to me and to others in a way that is patient and considerate of others' feelings, not just their own. I don't hear them bragging about their own generosity, good works, or accomplishments. I know that if I quickly need something, big or small, I can call them and they will do whatever they can to help, even if it is inconvenient or costs them something. This doesn't mean that they don't take time to rest or do things they enjoy. I just think that when I see the beauty in their selfless lifestyle... Speaking of investment, I think that, hard as it is, I want to maybe start taking little steps away from self-love and towards servanthood instead. I think that was beautifully written, and it challenges an assumption that we've somehow kind of become obsessed with in our culture and in our world, that first and foremost, we have to take care of, of ourselves. Investing. When you sacrificially place your gifts and abilities and resources on the table to use, be used by others and to benefit others, you are investing. Maybe just a quick side note, because I think some of you, this is spinning around in your head. Uh, maybe this helps. I, I was wondering about this myself, and I encourage you to interact with this um, yourself or around the dinner table, whatever, wherever you would like. Now, here's just something I'm going to throw out there. When you take or when we talk self-care or self-love, take time to care for yourself and love yourself as much as needed so that you can be effective and sustainable in pouring out your life for others. And I invite you to interact with that statement. The truth here is when you pour your life out for others, when you use your gifts and talents and your abilities for the blessing of others, you are making an investment that will come back to you. When you volunteer, you are making an investment that will come back to you. I have no problem saying that the happiest and the most fulfilled people I know are people who have invested their gifts and talents and abilities and resources into the lives of other people. I can't explain it to you. I've just seen it. It's an observation, uh, an objective observation that I've made. When you think about volunteering as a Sunday school teacher or a youth sponsor or going to UGM or LBE or a camp counselor or an Awana leader or for that matter the festival committee or as a hockey coach or baseball coach or hosting people at your house or bringing people meals on and on and on. When you think you are volunteering, when you think you are giving your time that's much too short-sighted, you are actually investing your time and your energy, an investment that will pay back. The Bible says so. 
actually you are investing something that's not even yours to begin with, but something that has been entrusted to you. And so maybe in some ways it's a little bit like what the bank does for us or the credit union does for us. Um, they invest for us, but it's actually not theirs. We've entrusted it to them, and then they invest it for us. And in a way, that's what we're doing with all the gifts and talents and abilities and resources that God has given to us. He's entrusted it, and now we get to invest it. Invest it the way we think he would want it to be invested. So how will you manage your abilities to work with children and youth? How will you manage the abilities God has entrusted to you to sing or play a, a musical instrument? How will you manage the financial resources that God has entrusted to you? How will you manage God's gift of wisdom that he has entrusted to you? How will you manage God's gift of being able to fix anything that he has entrusted to you? And on and on and on, entrusted to you for the purpose of having you invest it further. As you think about how you want to do life as part of God's kingdom, this story that Jesus tells challenges us to keep these two kind of general truths clearly in our minds. You have been entrusted and you are making an investment. Now, our time is not quite up, so I want to explore one further aspect of this story. There's this third guy. Um, this third guy that we need to talk about a little bit. It seems like he's kind of the focus in many ways of the story, and so we want to talk just a, a very little bit about this, this third guy. Um, he decides for whatever reason that he's going to take the one talent that wasn't trusted to him, and he is going to go and he is going to bury it, and then simply, when the owner returns, to simply give it back to him exactly the way he received it. What happens to him when the owner returns? Let me just quickly reread verses 24 to 27. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not gathered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put money, my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Now, for the sake of application, um, what we want to do is very quickly take a, a look at or explore the drawbacks. Why might people who have been entrusted with talents and gifts and abilities and opportunities and wisdom and intellect and resources, why would people who have been entrusted with not invest them further? Why would they not put them to work for the master? In a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to explore that for yourself uh, in, in our modern-day context. Um, what might some possible answers be? But right now, let's take a look at the answers here uh, given from the story of this one-talent man. That's what we're going to call him for the next few minutes, the one-talent man. And by the way, I, I kind of feel like maybe we are all kind of one-talent people. Um, I don't mean that you only have one talent. I mean that we're not the rich and the famous. We're not the Andy Stanleys in the world. We're not the, you know, the Kevin O'Leary's in the world. We're not the Ben Shapiro's in the world. 
um, those life-changing kind of, world-changing kind of people, we're all rural southern Manitoba folks, and we have our little thing that we do, and so we're all kind of the one-talent people. Sorry to break it to you, but we're all kind of in this category of being kind of a one-talent man or a one-talent woman. So we can identify with this one-talent guy here. He's not, he's not rich and famous. He's not one of the big movers and shakers. He's just kind of a normal, kind of a, a one-talent southern Manitoba kind of guy. So, the drawbacks. Why would this one-talent southern Manitoba guy not invest further? Why would he go and bury? Well, let's, let's listen to him for a second. What does he say? The answer he gives is, because I was Afraid. Because I was afraid. Now, was he really or was he using? We don't know for sure, but let's, let's take him at his word for now. He was afraid. I was afraid I would get it wrong. I was afraid I would make a fool of myself. I was afraid because I had never taught Sunday school before. I was afraid because I had never been to Union Gospel Mission before. I was afraid because I had never led worship before. I was afraid because I had never brought anyone supper before. I was afraid because we had never had people to our place for a meal before. I was afraid because we never really connected with those kind of people before. I was afraid. And so I did nothing. I was afraid and surely if something makes me afraid then I should never do it. Then I should find a safe place somewhere to bury my talent in the ground. Newsflash, people. All of the one-talent people that I know who are actively working in their little corner of the kingdom and doing a pretty good job of it have made significant mistakes along the way. They have tried. They have invested. And they have failed. And they have fallen. And then they have gotten back up and tried again. Sometimes in the same area. Thinking, I've learned from that. I'm going to do better next time. Sometimes getting back up and saying, huh, that's obviously not for me. I'm going to go and try over there. And they refocus and they get active somewhere else. That's totally legit also. But they've gotten back up and they've tried again. Even though they made brutal mistakes and they failed. I will try again. I will not simply bury my talent because of fear. Keep reading here. The master doesn't actually give this one talent guy a whole lot of credibility for the answer that he gives, this fear thing. Uh, the master has his own interpretation of what actually happened, what's going on in the mind of this one talent man. And so he replies to this one talent guy and he calls him wicked and lazy. Now this word wicked can also be translated or could also be translated false hearted or deceived. He believed incorrectly. He believed that the master was simply interested in getting back the original. Exactly it was given to him. Don't do anything with it. Just get the original back to him and he will be satisfied. I wonder if sometimes we are a little bit like that. Um, well, at least he's got me. I'm not doing anything for him. I'm not making any mistakes either. I'm not putting to work any of the abilities that he entrusted to me, but at least he's got my heart. Surely he should already be happy with that. 
I will go out and live my life exactly as I please, but the owner should be happy if at least I just give him back me. That is a false-hearted way of thinking. God is actually very interested in you, but he's actually also very interested in what you're doing, what kind of investments you're making with that with which you've been entrusted. God is very interested in what you are doing with all that has been entrusted to you. And so the master calls this guy wicked or false-hearted. He's thinking incorrectly. And secondly, he calls him lazy. Good thing there's no modern-day application for us being lazy. Or maybe, maybe there is. I mean, wow, that would take a lot of work. It would take a lot of time to learn to do that well. That requires way too much commitment. I would have to be there on a weekly basis. I cannot commit to that kind of time. I will be honest. Here's a, here's a bit of an objective observation. Uh, I believe that one of our biggest problems slash challenges in our world is, is commitment. I, I would gladly help out here and there, but I do not want to be in charge because I know that if I'm in charge, then I will be left hanging with, with the project when everybody else heads for the, for the beach or for the fun places. And I, I'm just not, just not interested in that. I've been amazed in our world that has been so obsessed with leadership development for the past 20 years at the incredible lack of leaders we have in our world. In our North American world here, gifted North American world. And I have begun to believe that for the most part leadership is not nearly as much about technique and style and strategy as it is about commitment. Commitment and time. A leader has to be the most committed one of the bunch. Lazy? Or I simply don't feel like it. It's too much work. Maybe I could add selfish. You know, I would rather not be stressed with that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, getting involved there is going to cause me stress, and I, I don't need that. Especially, I would rather not have the stress of taking on something that requires, you know, me taking responsibility. That adds a lot of stress to my life. So, fear, false-hearted, lazy. Are there other modern-day drawbacks that keep us from investing that which, which, that which has been entrusted to us? I'll let you ask that question, hopefully. Uh, ask that question and think that through for yourself. What keeps us back from investing that which with, with which we've been entrusted now let me just make a couple of quick comments in conclusion I said at the beginning that this type of message is somewhat motivated by the fact that we're quickly coming up to September I say that unashamedly a time when many of our church programs kick back into gear again now here's the thing um, when you're when you're in my position uh, we never I never ever want to guilt anyone into signing up for all kinds of things in church but I do want to challenge you to invest what you've been entrusted with. How do I do that? How do I balance this? How do I not guilt you and, and not even try to guilt you into saying yes to things, but at the same time challenge you to invest what you've been entrusted with? If you've got a good answer for me, please come and talk to me because I, I, I struggle. I struggle with knowing how to, how to do that. So, 
Um, that's just one little, quick little comment. Now, the second thing is this. At the same time, um, I love doing church. One of the most amazing things about church is the joy of seeing a place where people who are gifted in all kinds of different ways, with all kinds of different resources, when people come together, you guys, we, when we come together and we unselfishly put that stuff on the table and we begin to do church, I... I there's nothing for me as exhilarating as seeing that happen. The unselfish pooling of resources and then making church, doing church together. It's, it's an amazing um, activity. Uh, and it's life-giving. And so I love it. I love it. However, here's the other little, little thing. Um, let me be very clear. I am not suggesting that all of our volunteer energy should be taken up inside the church. Not for a minute. Um, I'm not suggesting that all of what you've been entrusted with should be invested here in this little context. I've always believed in balance and, and so I'm just going to throw something out here for you uh, again to chew on. Um, something for you to process. I believe that for the most part we all do well to divide our spare time into three categories. Uh, and I'm going to suggest somewhat equal categories. Again, I, this is not from the Bible. This is me speaking. Um, volunteer some in your church. I believe in it strongly. This is part of who you are. This is part of who you want to be. Put some resources here. Volunteer some in your community. Um, and community is, is big. But in your, in your world, um, volunteer some in the community, whether that's coaching your kids' baseball teams, whether it's volunteering in a hospital in Winnipeg sometimes, whether it's volunteering somewhere else or helping mow lawn someplace, whatever, whatever it is. Volunteer some in the community. And then, thirdly, spend some time on your own pleasure and leisure. And, and I'm going to suggest kind of dividing that into three equal categories. Think about that. Turn it over in your head. Uh, somehow I feel like those three equal categories create a balanced Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb a little more. Create a godly lifestyle. So, I'm simply going to say in conclusion, invest what has been entrusted to you. Amen.